Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Natalie, and we are the Art History Babes. And I'm here with Isabel Kent. Hi, everyone. Part two of our Historic Hospitals episode. So thank you for being here again. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to, to get started and talk more about, about some historic hospitals. Yeah, I hope you all have listened to the last episode we did on the Hospital de la Caridad. And if you haven't, now would be a great time to go back and listen to that. Or if you want to be a rebel and do it out of order... <laughs> won't tell you how to live your life, but you should definitely listen to both. Just as a little recap, Isabel's an art historian and has worked in curation previously at the Wallace Collection, and she has an awesome art history-based Instagram that you all should check out, where she writes about art and art historical works, and I'll let you tell everyone a little more about it before we get going. Yeah, so we were, uh, we were talking on the last podcast about the things I'm doing now. We're in quarantine and I can't go to museums and make these Insta stories about the museums. I've been getting really into making puzzles of artworks and then talking about those artworks and zooming in on the details because puzzles are so great for looking at little details. Yeah, if anyone has any great art history puzzles, I'm running low. So <laughs> it would be great to see what you guys have and, you know, make stories about those. And then you get to learn more about your puzzle, or mm. if you already know, just get to see your puzzle highlighted as an art historical piece. But yeah, no, it's a very fun little series you're doing. And I really like the intersection of art history and puzzles that's been going on because puzzling has just been, you know, a shelter in place, quarantine, whatever mm. you're calling it. It's been a pastime that a lot of people seem to be partaking in. And so... Yeah, no, everyone's got really into them. And I was, you know, just looking in at the people I follow and so many people have started doing puzzles and so many of them are of artworks. And it's 
yeah, just a nice way to bring some color and some art into your home. And it's fun for me because I get to explore the artworks and teach people and discuss them. And I'm very lucky that a lot of my followers are really knowledgeable. And so often they'll message me with cool facts that I hadn't come across or just new ways of looking at the artworks. So I have a lot of fun with my Instagram. Yeah. That's a very nice community you've built of art history and nerds, and we love that here. Well, we've got to stick together, us us art history nerds. We do. (laughs) We do, we do. We find more every day. (laughs) All right. So today we are talking about, I'll let you introduce it because... It was your idea, and I know you're excited to talk about this one. Yeah, sure. So, so the whole theme of these two these two episodes has been historic hospitals, because with everything that's going on, hospitals have really come to the forefront, and a and a, a, all of the healthcare workers are working very hard and doing incredible work. And I thought it would be interesting to look back at some of the historic hospitals and a lot of the artwork that was commissioned for those institutions. What's interesting is this artwork is really interconnected with what these hospitals were trying to do. So as we talked about yesterday with the, oh, (laughs) so as we talked about in the last episode with the Hospital de la Caridad, a lot of the subject matters that were being shown connected with the work of the hospital. And for the artwork that we're going to be talking about today, similarly, there are loads of different details that are woven into this hospital or monastery in this case. So. The artwork in question is the magnificent Isenheim altarpiece, which is one of the absolute masterpieces of Western art. And yeah, we're going to be diving into that, looking at a lot of the details of the artworks, but also talking about some of the context, the context of the disease that this hospital was set up to treat, and also the order of monks, Antonite monks, that grew in popularity as this disease increased and were very good at treating it. And and then yeah, look at the artwork itself. Which, if you haven't seen the Isenheim altarpiece, you're not familiar, and maybe religious work isn't your jam, stick around. It's such an interesting <laughs> piece of art. It's so layered, and I mean that, like, literally and figuratively. Yeah. Like, there are actual layers. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's worth sticking around, even if you don't think that altarpieces are your jam in particular. But yeah, other than that, I guess a quick disclaimer, like we did last time, maybe? Oh, yes, I think so. Just trigger warning about, I mean, nothing violent, but it's... Well, certainly sickness and, you know, the figures in this altarpiece, but also those people who are being treated in the hospital had very serious illnesses and skin conditions and things like that. And of course, uh, a lot of them didn't live Mm -hmm. after this illness. So I think if you're in the mood to hear those sorts of things or don't feel comfortable with us talking about that, then maybe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely sensitive subject matter, especially for the time. So Mm -hmm. if you are a little too fragile to listen right now, we understand. Yeah, I think that's all the warnings and disclaimers we have. Sounds good. (laughs) Ready for the fun. Yeah. What would be useful to start before we get into context, because I love talking about all the stories and the context that are around this art, is just to try and build uh, in people's minds an image of what this thing looks like. Because it is absolutely extraordinary. And it's something that, unless you've actually seen the altarpiece in the museum that it's now housed in, it is almost incomparable with any other work of art. So I think trying to build up that image in people's minds could be fun and a useful point to start. So 
Shall I get going with that? Please, please, please. I love a good visual analysis. We always preach the merits of starting with strong visual analysis. So yeah, the floor is yours. Okay, so to start off, it is huge. When you see pictures of people standing in front of it, they only reach up to the bottom, sort of the predella level, that lowest level of the altarpiece. And it's probably at least twice the height of a tall person. <laughs> yeah. And should I, should I give exact measurements? I know, I'm like looking at it right now, so I'm wondering if... I wonder if that would help people. I understand why they don't include them with images right off the bat, because it must just be a little complicated Mm. to give the exact dimensions. (laughs) 10 feet, 9 inches? Yeah, I'm English, so we use meters and and centimeters, but yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Khan Academy has my back here with... Feet and inches. Yeah, usually it is centimeters. I've actually, but I think, but I think ten feet gives an idea. I mean, twice the size of person's height. It's big, guys. (laughs) If you if you're five foot, (laughs) if you're my size. But okay, credit to what you were saying before, because even the way it's displayed is higher than that. Exactly. So it's already over ten feet. So it's already raised up because it's an altarpiece. So it would be raised up above the height of an altar. So it's raised to the height of about a table. And then when you stand in front of it, you're really craning up to look at these figures. And the figures are larger than life size, most of them. So that's the base level. It's really large. And then what you have, it's it's made on wood. And you have these panels that have hinges attached. And so what Natalie was saying about it being literally layered, you have a large image in the middle with these two swinging panels, and they swing out and reveal a whole nother set of images, both on the back of the doors and on the next set of doors, because then those ones swing out and reveal a set of sculptures behind them. So it is this incredibly layered, ornate, complex work of art. And that swinging out, we're going to be talking about that quite a bit in terms of the imagery and also in terms of the liturgy, how this object was used in the chapel that it was originally made for. But it's this very large polyptic. That's the word you give for a multi-image painting. Yeah, if you guys have heard of a diptych, which is two, triptych three, and then after that they were like, we're not making up more, so it's just polyptic. (laughs) If it's more than three, it's polyptic. But Yeah. yeah, so... I also just want to mention, because we were kind of talking about this last time with Germans being very practical people, and just the fact that like every surface is kind of being used, and it's it's a weirdly practical piece. Like it is definitely ornate, but um, yeah, just the way that it kind of like folds, and and it's not the only one like that, but it's on such a large scale, yeah, and so many. Yeah. I just feel like it's a good use of space. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I want to give credit for that. We're definitely going to go into all of the images that are painted on these panels, but I think it's just good to try and get in your head. It's almost like a folding book, you know, you can fold out all the pages and different images come on. What's what's that called? I think it's just a folding book, no? A fold-out book or something. Pop-up? A pop-up book. Yeah. It's a little bit like that, but on this huge scale but framed paintings (laughs) large framed paintings the framed paintings exactly and also we're going to be talking about it as if it was still intact but unfortunately it's now displayed at a museum and these panels have been separated so that they can all be viewed at the same time yeah in the museum so it no longer has this physical movement because these doors have been taken away 
But for the purposes of this, thinking about how this object was originally intended to be seen, looked at in terms of the symbolism and all of these different elements that we'll be talking about, I think let's just pretend that it's still yes. as it was. Would that count as kind of like period eye or period mind? <laughs> if we're like pretending that it's still... Yeah, exactly. So the main image on this, when all of the doors are closed and you just have a very large image in the centre and two at the side, so it basically becomes a triptych, the main image, right in the centre is a huge crucifixion scene. And the Christ is incredibly intense. It might be one of the most striking and grotesque Christs in the history of art. His hands are kind of contorted and his feet are all there's a greenish tinge to the skin and he's covered in these spots all over his body and we'll be talking about why that is in a bit there's so many teasers right now to to get everyone to to stick around for the for the next bits of the podcast but I just want to build up this image in your mind as that and it's in this absolutely desolate landscape with a very dark sky. And then you have the Virgin Mary and John on one side. There's the Mary Magdalene at the feet of the cross, just in hysterics, crying that Christ has died up on the cross. And then you have John the Baptist, which is curious because in this timeline, when the crucifixion happens in the Bible story, John the Baptist has already been killed by Herod and by Salome. But he appears there as a prophet of for the Messiah as sort of the last prophet. So you have these scenes. Okay, so that is the central panel. And then you have these two panels on either side, one of which, the left-hand side panel, depicts St. Sebastian. And then on the right-hand panel is St. Anthony. And these are two very important saints. St. Sebastian, he is the Roman martyr saint who was struck full of arrows. You often see him, this beautiful semi-nude with all these arrows sticking out of him and looking uh, <laughs> looking very elegant, uh, often in Renaissance painting. Yeah. Interesting, Sebastian has since, I don't know if you, you know this, Natalie, but in like modern art, he's seen as this kind of gay icon. I see why. He yeah. has great hair. He <laughs> is working that red fabric. <laughs> I sure. Mean, He's fabulous. <laughs> I, I don't think this is the most sexy St. Sebastian I've seen. No. But it is St. Sebastian. Yeah, when I say his hair is fabulous, it's got a little bit of a like Lord Farquaad vibe, but it does look very shiny. <laughs> yeah, a bit of a bowl cut. His mum's just done it. Yep. He's been in quarantine, so his mum's had to cut his hair. <laughs> we all <laughs> empathise. <laughs> yeah, so, so St. Sebastian is there because he is a saint very closely associated with the plague, the Black Death. And the Black Death would bring up boils all over your body, bring up sort of black spots all over your body. And because St. Sebastian was pierced through with arrows, he's often very closely associated as a saint that you pray to when you're ill or when you have the plague. And St. Anthony, who is in the other panel, he was included as a saint very specific to this hospital. This hospital was run by the Antonite Order, an order of monks that was set up to honour St. Anthony, and particularly to treat a disease called St. Anthony's fire. So now we come to some context. I've given you the image of what the first layer of this altarpiece looks like. Behind the swinging doors, the images that are there we'll get to later, they're mysterious for now, as they would have been to many of the people who saw this altarpiece when it was made, when the doors were closed. But we'll move on to the context. One other thing I want to underscore just about the visual is how much red there is. There's, 
I feel like an overwhelming use of red in this altarpiece, especially the first view. Definitely, definitely. Everyone seems to be wearing red clothes. Yeah, there are very, very few other colours and it gives it this real intensity. Mm -hmm. You're, You're looking at this first layer of images and you're just struck by the red. I think that really... Um... It, it heightens the passion that's already so apparent. And also, it's just not a super common thing to see because a lot of times colors used to identify different people. And so if you're using color for something like that, you're not really making choices mm. based on aesthetic. Whereas like to have everything red, I'm just such a sucker for this visually. I know that wasn't necessarily the point. But well, I think it's part of the point to make it so dramatic. Yeah. And also to connect it with, you know, with blood and with pain. And you have this Christ on the cross who is bleeding and you have this very sort of visceral feelings, right? this really strong sense of sickness throughout this painting yeah and so I think that red really brings that out totally I also wonder how much the colors of this painting have changed over time me too because as you'll know pigments darken and change color and I wonder if in the landscape there was more green for example green is a color the pigment used to make green often darkens to brown and so I wonder if it was brighter but even if not see that because I feel like another thing about the red is how much it emphasizes the green and the green really is bringing that sick feeling to the painting so on top of adding passion yeah the green and the skin tone yeah it's underscoring and emphasizing the like sickness and the sickliness in his skin definitely but enough about color despite all the red there's very little kind of warmth in the painting it all feels like it's yeah death how can red feel so cold for real it's extraordinary yeah okay we promised you context so context (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah we've just got sucked back into talking about the image so the isenheim altarpiece was made for an Antonite monastery, as I've said, in a small town called Isenheim, which is near the larger city of Colmar. And Colmar, the museum in Colmar is now where the altarpiece is housed. But originally, it was in Isenheim, which is in the Alsace region of France. And the Alsace region, the reason most of us know about it is from studying World War One, when the Alsace region was passed back to France from Germany. It's right on the border with Germany. And it's been owned by either France or Germany, switching between the two many different times. And so it's quite a contentious region. And the Isenheim altarpiece is made by a a man with a very, very German sounding name, (laughs) Matthias Grunewald. And although that might not necessarily have been his real name, because there are some issues about who the artist exactly was, it certainly has that very strong German connection. And so it's in this very sort of contentious border land. Uh, The land around this region is very flat and it was farmland. And that ties in with why this monastery was needed, why this hospital was essential for this area. Because this hospital, the Antonite Order, was dedicated to the treating of a disease called St. Anthony's Fire. That disease now is known as ergotism. And it's a disease that comes from eating wheat, eating sort of rye bread that has been contaminated with a fungus, an ergot fungus. And it is a horrible, horrible sickness. And it would break out in these epidemics pretty frequently during the Middle Ages and cause 
really incredibly bad damage to to many people and many people's lives. So what ergotism did was it caused madness, it caused insanity. There have been some people saying it gave you visions kind of similar to LSD. I think that they actually derived LSD from the same fungus that was in the bread. Is that right? Wow. I read that. I haven't fact-checked it, but... (laughs) <laughs> I did read it. <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I didn't know that, but certainly there are, there's discussions about this. But if there's any scientists listening that can let me know, or just LSD historians. <laughs> yeah. But it had much worse effects even than than madness and and yeah, far more yeah. side effects than LSD has. Oh yes. We're not trying to say that ergotism <laughs> is like tripping on LSD. That yeah. is not what I not what I'm saying here. Yeah, definitely. Because it also it also caused you to have sores all over your body. It caused your blood vessels to kind of contract around your ligaments and so you started to get gangrene on your hands and on your legs. And often people who were being treated for ergotism had to be amputated, that their limbs had to be amputated to save them from this gangrene. And it was incredibly painful, this sort of burning sensation all over your body. So a really horrible, horrible illness, not something you would ever take lightly. And also something that would affect disproportionately affected the peasant population, it affected the poorer population, because they were the ones that were eating cheap bread and they didn't have access say to more fancier wheat breads and things like that so it could be very terrible but for a long time they didn't know what caused this illness known as St Anthony's fire it was only about a century after the Isenheim altarpiece was made that it was finally connected to this fungus and that really meant that then people could avoid getting it because if you knew okay this wheat has this fungus on it it's going to make me really sick you just don't harvest it you know you don't you don't eat it. And so then the cases of ergotism dropped. But before then, it was very, very prevalent and and very deadly. And in these Antonite hospitals, they used healing practices that weren't necessarily proven to work. It was kind of lucky in a way that these things that these things helped. But they did become incredibly good at amputation, uh, which in a time when you didn't have anaesthetic, amputating someone was pretty difficult. Yeah. But then they also had other ways of treating it. So they would make these sort of herbal remedies that were using anti-inflammatory herbs, and that helped to reduce the pain of it. And they would also mix these herbs in wine and then swill them around relics, saints' relics, so saints' bones or, you know, toenails or whatever a relic is. A relic is just a part of a saint's body. Swill them around and then they would miraculously cure people. Now, I'm sure the herbs had some effect on that. I don't know how many people who are listening maybe feel strongly about relics, but I think they are... I'm I'm not sure quite how much they would have helped. If they didn't feel strongly about relics before, now with the visual <laughs> of wine swirling around a toenail, I'm sure they feel very strongly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, we've talked about it on previous episodes. Relics were and are by many still believed to have yeah, miraculous properties inexplainable power or i guess explainable because it comes from god exactly but yeah so while it is really silly to think about a toenail in wine mm. it's also real and these people were really suffering so anything that 
I don't know. I've talked about this before. Like, I'm a big believer in... Anything that could ease people's suffering. Exactly. In placebo effect. I don't think there's anything wrong with the placebo effect. I think that if something can mentally switch something into making you feel better without really changing anything physiologically, that's great. (laughs) I think that's magic. So, um... Yeah, I think that whatever your beliefs are, that if you believe in something, that is very powerful. So, sure. I believe in herbs and anti inflammatories. And I yeah, well, definitely anti inflammatories certainly help to reduce inflammation, as the title says. And I think, you know, relics played a really central part in medieval and even, you know, right up to the modern day. People use relics to heal them. Um, But they're often seen as being a medieval thing and and playing a very central role in in healing and healing practice. And people would travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to to get to a relic, you know, that they believed could help them. Mm -hmm. And so this practice, clearly it did help a lot of people. The Antonite order was really renowned as being this hospital that could treat ergotism. But another thing that helped probably is these monasteries were very well funded. And so when you arrived there, you would be eating fairly decent food, probably better than what you'd been eating at home. And the change of scene, you know, maybe if you traveled 100 miles to get to this monastery that would heal you, maybe they were getting their bread from a different source that wasn't contaminated with er- with ergot fungus, and that might have helped as well. So there were all of these different things that were connected to these hospitals and that were ways that they managed to cure some of the people that, that arrived there. And they did very good work because it was something that was really ravaging the population. And this order, the Antonite Order, it was founded in 1095 by a Frenchman called uh, Gaston de Valois. And I, I love that because Gaston is just the most the most French name uh, that you can get uh, with Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. But he was really grateful to St. Anthony. He founded this order because his son had been cured of ergot poisoning, of, of St. Anthony's fire, by visiting Anthony's relics. And so he saw this as really important. And actually, something I should probably flag up here is there's a lot of confusion about St. Anthony because there are two St. Anthony's. And so a lot of people think that St. Anthony's fire is named after St. Anthony of Padua. He's the saint who is a follower of St. Francis. He is a very beloved saint. His relics are in Santo in Padua, and they're one of the major pilgrimage sites still to this day because he is this sort of saint of lost things and if you've lost someone or, or you've lost something or a loved one or something like that you'll go visit St Anthony and one of the reasons everyone thinks that St Anthony's fire is connected to him is because he died of ergotism he died of St Anthony's fire but actually it's not <laughs> St Anthony's fire is named after St Anthony the Great who was an early Christian saint. Yeah. He was he was born in Egypt in 251, so 251 AD, and he apparently lived for 105 years. And so unlike all the other saints from this period, he wasn't a martyr. He died of old age. But he was a saint who's often thought of as one of the first ascetic saints, ascetic, if you like, saints, where he, his parents died when he was 20. He inherited quite a lot of wealth, but he immediately gave it all away, sold his land, and went out into the desert to pray and to contemplate Christ and Christianity. 
And there are some of the scenes from St. Anthony's life are in the Isenheim altarpiece. And I want to talk specifically about the temptation of St. Anthony's scene, which is in the furthest back layer of the altarpiece. So when we get there, when we're talking about it, I'll talk more about this part of his life. But this disease is linked to him, not to the other St. Anthony. So I wanted to kind of clarify that confusion because... That's an important distinction. Yeah, it's just curious that there are two saints called Anthony, and the one that St. Anthony's far doesn't refer to is the one that died of the disease. So so I think it's very easy It is just inherently confusing. (laughs) Exactly. It's very easy to conflate the two. So we were talking about this, the Antonite order being founded, and it became very popular because they were very good at treating the disease. And then during the Black Death, it also expanded its remit. These hospitals expanded their remit to treat plague victims. But after the Black Death had kind of passed, it went back to treating ergotism. And the Isenheim altarpiece is from that period where they've gone back to treating ergotism. It's just before the decline in the number of cases of the disease. So it's still a very important hospital, but it very quickly falls out of favour after the date that the Isenheim altarpiece is made. All right, guys, so I think this is a good time to take a little break, a little ad break here, and we'll come back and continue talking about the chapel and the altarpiece. All right, guys, we're back. Back from that break. Hope you enjoyed those messages from our sponsors. And we're talking about the Isenheim altarpiece. Yeah, so we've we've talked about some of the context about the sickness that the Antonite Order was treating. And so I think this is a good time to go back back to the altarpiece and have a closer look at it and how it connects with all those different things we were talking about. So the altarpiece, which is by Matthias Grunewald, was commissioned by the preceptor of this hospital, by the head of the hospital, and he was called Guido Gersi. Uh, which sounds quite a, like an Italian name to me, don't you think? Yes, very Italian. It doesn't sound German or French. No. Guido, come on, that is the most Italian name. <laughs> exactly, he's called Guido. So he clearly had some spare cash, and he wanted to beautify the hospital's chapel. This was, of course, a very important space in any religious hospital, where many of the sick patients would come, and they would pray that God might come and heal them. And so he gave this commission to Matthias Grunewald in 1512. That's when we think this was commissioned, and it was probably finished by 1516. So it took roughly four years to make this. And the set of panels that Grunewald paints would surround some sculptures that were commissioned slightly earlier, that the monastery already had, and they were by Nicholas Halgenaer. Can you say that better with your German? Ooh, I, <laughs> I know you've done some German. I don't think so. Let me try. Nicolas <clears throat> Haugenauer. Haugenauer? No. Yeah. Haugenauer. <laughs> I don't know. I think you did it. <laughs> well, he's not a very known sculptor anyway. He, he, he's mostly well known for these sculptures in the Isenheim altarpiece. And they're quite stiff in comparison to the incredible paintings that surround them. But anyway, they already have these sculptures. We'll talk about what they depict when we get to that layer. They are in the deepest uh, layer of the altarpiece. Gotta get to the end, to the centre of the altarpiece. It's like a Tootsie Pop. Exactly. Well, actually, I don't know what a Tootsie Pop is. I don't think we have them here. (laughs) Oh, they're uh, lollipops with a Tootsie Roll in the centre, which is like a chocolatey, chewy candy. 
essentially. So basically, you have to eat all the outside lollipop to get to the center. Okay, okay. I'm gonna go. I'm just gonna <laughs> think that that analogy made sense. <laughs> just go. Maybe you need to send did. me some Tootsie Rolls, and then I'll understand and be like, "Now this is the Isenheim Altarpiece." I think it's all the commercials that they had when I was growing up. <laughs> I'm programmed. I'm a '90s kid. Can't help it. I'm going to look out for them next time I'm in the in the states. Okay, right. so this this altarpiece being made for this chapel that would have treated the sick, and you'd think, okay, what the sick need if they're in a huge amount of pain and trying to heal is a nice reassuring image, and that is not what they got. Uh, what they got is the most grisly painting. We've already done a little bit of uh, describing of those first scenes, the, the, the scenes that you see on the outer layer of the altarpiece. But I think now would be a good time to really zoom in and to talk about uh, some of the details, what they mean, how they connect to the religious order and to the treating of the sick. But I think really to emphasize that these are very strong, intense images to be seeing when you're already feeling ill. And especially if you're at a stage where ergotism is causing you to have some form of madness, that's, <laughs> that's maybe not the kind of images you want to be seeing. Yeah, absolutely not. The thought of being in a hallucinogenic state and then seeing these. And we talked about the fact that like, these paintings have changed since they were first made, so they were probably even more vivid and intense and emotional to view back then. And the twisting of Christ's body and limbs, and it's one of those things where you could crop out just a single hand or potentially a finger from this Christ and still get the, the pain that he's feeling. Yeah, yeah, it's that visceral. Yeah, well, it's fascinating because this, the story of the passion is one that is so full of pain, and and it describes very vividly. You know, he's got he's got nails through his hands. I mean, how incredibly painful must that have been yeah. to then be hanging by nails that are driven through your hands? And yet, a lot of the crucifixions that you know many of us are used to seeing are quite peaceful you know Christ looks you know peaceful and radiant even and it's not this violence that's being seen in this image yeah those contorted hands in particular they look almost as though they're sort of spiders that have been you know pierced through the center and they're just rigid with this pain but they are yeah it's incredibly rough and then the feet as well Oh, God, yeah. The feet, it just, it looks like skin from a, a corpse that has been dead for several days and it's kind of hanging off and they're green and the flesh is really lifeless and there's blood dripping down from them. This is all very strong and intense imagery. And, you know, if if you can stomach it, you know, listeners, I definitely recommend finding some some high resolution images of these and zooming in because it's not for the faint of heart, but this is the sort of thing that these yeah. sick patients would have been seeing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they didn't have photography back then. So this graphic, because this was a reality that yeah. people had access to and that people were living with and amongst. And quite literally in this case, because we see in Christ the the feet, which I was saying, look like they're, you know, they've been dead for several days. Yeah. They look gangrenous you know they look like the feet of people who would have been suffering the late stages 
of ergotism. I actually looked up gangrene when you brought it up because I have a understanding of gangrene, but I've never looked it up. And so I made the mistake of Googling it. I would not recommend it to you guys because it, it is pretty disgusting. And I have a pretty strong stomach for these things. And like one glance at the Google images page, I was like, yep, okay, I got it. I don't need to look anymore. Yeah, don't go near that. It's a very gnarly thing to see photographs of and this painting is very realistic yeah and detailed yeah and so I mean this this would have been something that these people viewing this uh, could really understand on a very deep level and the fact that he's also he's covered in these kind of pock marks which is similar to what you would get when you had the disease and so you know it's taking that idea of having empathy with Christ to the next level because Christ is literally feeling the way that you are feeling. If you have this disease and you're sitting in this chapel looking at this crucified Christ, it looks like he's been going through exactly what you're going through. And I think that must have been a very powerful message yeah. you know, to the masses, to the, to the sick who were there. To liken their suffering to that of Christ. And yeah, I, I could see how that would bring, if not comfort, at least maybe I don't know what that might bring for people this is just such a gnarly thing to look at yeah empathy at least yeah if if you're very deeply a believer in in the Christian story and of course everyone at this time was pr- pretty much everyone of course we were about to have yeah, the reformation yeah. so so they they change it up a bit but certainly everyone believed in Christ and Christ's suffering and so you have this image. I think it would have been very powerful to people. And, and I think it would have brought comfort. Certainly this quite intense, possibly grotesque comfort. Yeah. But it shows that, you know, you two can pass through this. If you're if you're so ill and if the herbs are not working and the, the wine swilled around the relic of St. Anthony isn't working to heal you, then you can see this. And particularly an image that we're going to be talking about in the next layer, you'll see these things and possibly see hope for the afterlife. I just want to zoom in on some of the images, uh, some of the figures that are surrounding Christ, because I think they're very intense as well. So on the left hand side of Christ, we have right down the bottom is the Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, she's always, you can usually identify her by the very long hair, because after Christ sort of saved her from a life of sin, she never cut her hair. And so she gets this incredibly long, straggly hair. And so this is this is her here, but it's like the Magdalene as I've never seen her in any other painting. Yeah, her hands are like raised in, I don't know, anguish maybe, I would say. Yeah, they, they look like they're half in prayer. But if you're in prayer, but so stressed out that your fingers don't curl round your hands, but jut directly yeah. out. And so they look, yeah, it's half prayer, half anguish. Her face is just contorted in misery, it looks like. And the veil that's coming down, it it covers over her eyes, but you can still see her eyes through it. And it almost looks to me that that veil is almost like the tears that might be sort of coming down, cascading down her face. Yeah, that's really powerful. Yeah. And then just behind her is the Virgin Mary, and she seems to have collapsed. Again, she looks like a corpse. She looks like she's just keeled over in shock at seeing her son dead on the cross, and she's being supported by John the Evangelist. 
Yeah. Who also looks very stricken, but also very concerned for this woman who's just, just collapsed. Yeah, exactly. He's holding her and she's mirroring the pose of Mary Magdalene, but I would say a little more dignified, which would make sense mm. contextually, just trying to portray them both, but they're both kind of arching back. She's just, I don't know, the, the way that Mary Magdalene is arching back reminds me a lot of the Ecstasy of St. Teresa mm. sculpture that Bernini did, where she's kind of like arching back in a reaction, and the Virgin Mary ultimately is still keeping her composure in a way. Like, it's like a fainting in... To me, she looks like she's made of marble. You know, when you when you zoom in, it's almost as though she's been carved from marble, the Virgin Mary. And even the white of her sort of veil that then comes all the way down her body has these seams in it that you get when you're in, in marble. Mm-hmm. And so it really looks like she's almost a sort of a monument to a dead figure. You know, she's like those marble effigies that you will find uh, in churches mm-hmm. throughout the world, uh, but particularly in, in Europe at this time. Yeah, she's even got her eyes closed, you know, her eyes closed mm-hmm. in, in death as if she is suffering, certainly in a different way, but suffering just as much as her son on the cross uh, is suffering. This this absolute sort of horror at what has happened. Yeah. And just to add to your marble description, the color from her face to her clothing is like seamless nearly. The mm. white kind of just all blends, especially from far away. Yeah. So yeah, she does look made of stone. Mm. And it's interesting to me how much this one side, the the left-hand side with these three figures on it, contrasts so strongly to the figure who's on the other side, who is John the Baptist. And he is standing, I think, very calm, pointing at Christ. He doesn't seem to have any emotion in his face. He just, he seems, he's almost like a lecturer gesturing to something on a, an, on a PowerPoint slide behind him. Oh yeah, unaffected. Exactly. And I think that's because he's not there witnessing the scene. He is there as a prophet, knowing that this would have happened. As I mentioned earlier, John the Baptist, in this time, in, in the timeline of the Bible, has already been killed at this point. But really, John is often seen as, well, John is the last Old Testament prophet, the last person who prophesies the coming of the Messiah. And so he's there sort of pointing, coming from the past and saying, I knew this would happen. And to make that point all the more clear, there's actually an inscription there just above his hand. That's very cleverly like framed between his weird pointing finger and his face. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And just by his face where he might be speaking it as well. Mm -hmm. And it's of course, it's in Latin. But what it means in English, because I'm not going to have a go at the Latin, (laughs) because I'm sure my pronunciation would be terrible. No pressure. uh, What it says in English is he must increase, but I must decrease, which is from John 3.30. So yeah, what do you think that means, Natalie? He must increase, but I must decrease. So I'm thinking that the decrease is Christ's, you know, decaying body, Mm. dying body, is my first guess. I wonder, because I think 
it was John that's John the Baptist that said this. So so John ah. the Evangelist is quoting. So it's from John the Evangelist's gospel. I hear you. He is quoting John the Baptist saying something. Okay, so if we didn't confuse you guys enough with the Anthony's, now we're gonna bring in the John. <laughs> Okay, no, I hear you. I hear you though. Okay, so I have a a feeling that what it refers to is the fact that John the Baptist had a lot of followers at the same time that Christ had a follower. John the Baptist was never an apostle of Christ. But maybe what he's saying is that he must decrease. John the Baptist's importance must decrease so that Christ's can increase and so that he can be identified as being the son of God. I wonder if that's what it means. Yeah, that sounds right to me. That makes a lot of <laughs> sense, actually, considering the context and everything. Yeah. And I'm just trying to think now, now that you've solved that mystery for me, because <laughs> I'm assuming that that quote was selected very intentionally to make people feel something. Yes. And I'm assuming it's supposed to bring some sort of comfort. So I'm wondering if it's I'm just trying to think of how that could be Mm. translated into comfort for viewers. I wonder if it's a way of saying to the people who are looking at this, to those people suffering this illness, saying that you're suffering, you know, you are decreasing, and that glorifies Christ, that increases Christ. So perhaps it's a way of making these people who are suffering connect themselves to John the Baptist and to his his suffering the fact that he was killed and saying that it's you know it's for greater things it's for uh, the greatness of God in in the long term and yeah just kind of restoring that faith that there is a larger a larger picture here exactly and I think a lot of a lot of art at this time and uh, you know this might be one of the one of the greatest examples of it is trying to convince people that their suffering is is not permanent, it's only earthly, and that there is something better in the future. And after you die, you will go to heaven. If you lead a virtuous life, all of this suffering will be left behind and you will go up to heaven. And, you know, I'm sure that was that was an incredibly reassuring thing to a lot of people because this is at a time when you know there's a lot of a lot of sadness in the world. You know, there's very high infant mortality, there's illnesses there's you know the the possibility of of hunger and and starvation and all of these different things that in our modern world you know we rarely have to contend with those sorts of issues particularly in the western world and in the more developed world so it's very easy to forget that this was something that people were contending with every single day of their lives and so i think this might have offered a lot of hope for people yeah or at least some sort of solace that they're suffering isn't for nothing Mm. even if that is where they're at exactly yeah that's powerful yeah and I think we've talked about the two saints already I want to just flag up the predella part of this painting which is right down the bottom and I didn't talk about this when we were first introducing what this initial area of the the first layer of the painting looked like but actually this is the bit that would have been at eye level and what it shows is the entombment of Christ You have the dead Christ lying along the bottom and he's being supported by John the Evangelist. The Virgin is there, Mary Magdalene is there, and there's this empty tomb. And actually the shape of the panel is almost like a coffin Mm -hmm. in the shape of it. 
And Christ, again, he's covered in these stores. He has all these different signs of having suffered from ergotism. But what I really want to flag up is that this predella also moves. It also swings out like a door. And where the break is for the middle part of the door, you know, where the break in the wood is, mm-hmm. where you have the two doors either side, it cuts Christ's legs. It cuts through Christ's legs because he's lying horizontally. And it splits it just below the knee. And it's been said that this was very purposeful, because if you were going to be amputated, if your legs were going to be amputated, which was very common for people who were suffering the later stages of ergotism, then the place that it would be amputated was just below the knee. And so this is yet another thing that is alluding to Christ being similar to those people who are suffering with this disease and linking it specifically to this hospital. Wow. So should we open the doors and go to the next layer? Let's do it. Let's do it. This layer has been fun, but there's more fun to be had. There is so much, and there's so much more colour in the next layer too. Yes. So here in the second layer, we have immediately so much more colour. And I think maybe that's partly because if this altarpiece was often closed, the pigments might have been protected mm. and so wouldn't have been faded by exposure to light. You know, often when people go to museums, we're not allowed to take photographs with flash because that damages the pigment. And so maybe that's why this is so bright. But also just the scenes are very bright. So on the far left side, we have the Annunciation, the moment when the angel Gabriel comes down to the Virgin and says, you will conceive the Son of God. Mm -hmm. So in the centre, we have a really unusual subject matter. Mm -hmm. When you first look at it, it's quite easy to understand. On the right-hand side of the picture, you have the Virgin holding the Christ child. It's a very common subject matter, particularly in Germany at this time. You have all these famous prints of this subject by Albrecht Dürer and by other great printmakers. Martin Schongauer makes prints of this subject. And she's sitting there in a landscape holding the Christ child. But then the scene very curiously, as you move towards the left, seems to go into an interior so the Virgin is, is sitting in a beautiful landscape, but it goes into an interior which is full of angels. And this part of the scene is called the Concert of Angels, because you have all of these angels playing musical instruments. And these angels, just compared to other religious paintings with angels, to me, they feel very fairy-like. They're a little bit like lighter and more sprite-like mm. than angels tend to be sometimes. Just... To give you more of a visual of yeah. the appearance. Yeah. So the, the main angel in the very foreground is dressed in this sort of light pink flowing robes. And I, I definitely see what you mean about the sort of the sprite light like nature mm-hmm. of the angel. And it's playing an instrument called a viola de gamba, which is quite similar to a cello. And it's really curious about this figure because the viola da gamba had only recently been invented as a musical instrument at the time that Grunewald painted this. Which means it's a slight flex that he is doing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it is a slight flex, which he then ruins by not knowing how the angel should be holding the bow. Oh man, you were so close. Because the angel (laughs) is holding the bow incorrectly. It's kind of, it's holding it backwards. And I actually, I sent this picture to a friend of mine who plays the cello and they were like, yeah, nah, there's no way you could play this <laughs> instrument like that. There's no way at all. And this is holding it backwards. But there are some theories, you know, art historians love to come up with theories when there's mm-hmm. something a bit weird on display. 
And so there are three theories. The first one is that Grunewald didn't know how to play the viola da gamba, which seems like a pretty straightforward, you know, theory. He just... Likely. (laughs) Exactly. But that's too simple for our historians. We like to make things really complicated. Oh, yes. So the second theory is that the angel is playing the music of the spheres, as it's called, which is the sort of heavenly music that angels play. And of course, if you're an angel, you're not going to play an instrument in the same way that earthly mortals play instruments. You know, they can do something that's even more special and miraculous and heavenly. So this angel, it's demonstrating that the angel is playing a different kind of music mm-hmm. to the music that that we all know on earth. So that's the second theory. That actually could work. I could see that. That's like a motif that I feel like comes up, trying to distinguish visually heavenly beings from earthly beings. I see that. Yeah, through different colors or through you know their actions and things like that so that's one theory and then the third theory i'm not so convinced by the third i I shouldn't start with that should i (laughs) i should let people make up their own minds and just tell you what the theory is the theory is that grunewald purposefully wanted the angel to hold the bow so that it could be pointing where the angel's womb is on a body which obviously angels don't even have wombs and i also think this angel may well be a man yeah so this is the exact (laughs) opposite direction from the previous theory (laughs) right and so one is saying the angel is different inherently different (laughs) from the earthly being so we have to you know show that and now the angel has right (laughs) and it's and it's pointing to the womb area because of course christ was miraculously entered the womb of the virgin mary and it's alluding to the miraculous nature of the Christ child that in the right-hand side of this picture is being held by the Virgin. And it's, you know, something that might convince it is that if you then follow the bow in the other direction, it hits where the Christ child is in terms of the composition. Mm -hmm. And the angel is also looking at the Christ child. So that's another theory for this. I don't know. Which one do you think, Natalie? Honestly, I think that it's either some combination of the first and third or the second because I could see it being that he didn't necessarily know how the instrument was played or didn't remember exactly and then just compositionally wanted to create a leading line from yeah there or just to the Christ child and also just because that's a theory or a practice that I've heard before is yeah Yeah. using leading lines to of course to direct the gaze and to exactly to move the eye around the painting and convey an action that you can't convey in a two-dimensional still definitely i also could see taking the creative choice just because so much is so intentional about all of this i could see taking the Mm. creative choice of being like angels play different music and to play different music you need to hold the instrument differently yeah I wonder, because there's another figure in the painting, another one of these angels that's also playing an instrument wrong. So Mm. I wonder if that maybe adds more weight to the heavenly music theory, Mm -hmm. or it just adds more weight to the fact that Grunewald wasn't very musical (laughs) and didn't know how to play instruments. So one or the other. Listen, I'm not going to judge him if he wasn't very music savvy. He clearly knew how to paint. Definitely. So... You know, pick your lane, <laughs> stick to it. He knew how to do that. Yeah, you can't you can't be good at everything. Oh, and he clearly was good at this exactly. thing, so we'll give him that. And actually, this other angel that is holding 
an instrument, strangely, is one that I also really want to take a moment to look at because it is so curious. This angel is at the very left-hand side of the picture behind the angel that's dressed in light pink. Mm -hmm. And he is really curious because whereas all the other angels are dressed in kind of flowing robes, this angel doesn't have any clothes. He's just completely clad in feathers. And he's also grey. All of these feathers are grey, all around his body and on his wings. And he's also, unlike everyone else in this painting, he's not looking at the Virgin and Child. He is looking up where there's a little picture of God. And he's just really intriguing why he's there. He also has this crest on the top of his head that looks kind of like a spine, you know, like the bones in your spine. Yeah. And... A theory which I find really convincing as to who this angel is, is that this is Lucifer. Mm. Yeah, because Lucifer, of course, he was an angel. Yeah, the most beautiful angel. Yeah, he, exactly. He was the best angel. He was the most loved. He was God's favorite before. <laughs> yeah, and, and he was doing a great job, but then he got a bit too big for his boots. He wanted to have an uprising and he was thrown out of heaven. And of course he fell and I would all, you know, if any of you have read Milton's brilliant description of his, of his fall from grace. We go into that in our episode. Um, We have a whole episode about the devil and the iconography of the devil called The Dev. (laughs) Okay, great. And uh, I talk about Dante and Milton's descriptions of the devil and just the different visuals that have been done based on those literary descriptions because they're wonderful. Fantastic. Well, after everyone's finished listening to this, you know what other podcast to do, you know what other episode to check out. I'm so glad Lucifer made it into this. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah so, so there's a possibility that this figure is Lucifer, because he's very different from all of the others. He's looking up. He doesn't seem to have a sort of a reverence for, for the virgin and child. But what this might be is the moment when Lucifer realizes that his sort of great nemesis has arrived in the form of Christ. Mm-hmm. And also, this it makes sense that Lucifer would be included in this painting because he is the person who, or the, the angel, that brings sickness and tries to tempt humanity to sin and do all these different things. So the fact that he's been sneakily included in a painting that, you know, is, is speaking to people who are sick mm-hmm. and, you know, possibly nearing the end of their lives and should try and not be sinful might you know, be saying a lot. Definitely. Or, or might might be connecting with that. And so just to come back to the visuals of the angels as well. So I, I'm, I'm full on with the Lucifer theory now. I believe that this is Lucifer. <laughs> I'm glad I'm so, I'm so convincing. <laughs> <laughs> so all our little sprite-like angels, like the further back you get, they become more pooty-like, just turning into little like faces mm. and wings. I get the sense that it's based on a real portrait like a a real person that she knew and so now or he knew sorry and then so now I'm just wondering who Lucifer was based Mm. on yeah you don't want you don't want that accolade to be to be the portrait of of the devil so much so much shade thrown over the years by depicting certain characters in history and biblical scenes Mm. as real people yeah, it's kind of like my favorite shade that gets thrown, and I wish I knew all of it. <laughs> There's just some big gossip book. Anyway, I'm digressing. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. And the more detail I get into this part of the painting, I really am kind of leaning toward the idea that the instrument 
stuff is either intentionally wrong Mm. or was done wrong or it was done in a way that was intentional and not meant to be right or wrong but just to aid in the visual composition well I'm I'm thinking the same thing because particularly now that I've sort of zoomed in on on the Lucifer character and you see the way that he is playing the instrument that he's holding Mm -hmm. and the hands are really stretched out in the way that people who play string instruments particularly something like a cello their hands would have to create those kind of positions Mm -hmm. and so that makes me think that uh that Grunewald did know what he was doing Mm -hmm. and those hands weirdly kind of mirror Christ's hands in the previous scene or his fingers the like Mm, long kind of like tense fingers they're not the same hands by any means but they have a green hue to them and they have that intensity of joint and flexing yeah he was just good at hands Grunewald was just good at hands and he knew to show it off (laughs) yeah and he knew that hands were a way of you know were as powerful at expressing ideas and expressing emotion as faces can be He's a, yeah, he's a real master of master of the good hand. Oh, yes. And talking about hands, the final scene, the rightmost panel in this, hands are very prominent here because this is the most trippy resurrection <laughs> painting uh, you will ever see. It belongs on an album cover. It does. <laughs> I was thinking that of kind of the prog rock, you know, you know, prog rock album covers, thing like King Crimson and those sorts of bands which have, yeah, very LSD-inspired album covers. Yes. If you all slept on this, then younger bands, get on it. This would be the perfect album cover. <laughs> <laughs> well, we already, in, in last episode, didn't we come up with a really good band, band name? name? We're throwing out ideas left and right. Uh, it was hi- Hieroglyphics of Death. So Hieroglyphics of Death, and then you have to have this as your album cover. This is perfect. We're just creating your entire your entire band for you. We're feeding this to you. Your first album <laughs> is going to be called Resurrection 2020. Perfect. <laughs> You better cite us. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, this is such an insane scene. Yeah. So so you have, let's just do a little describer for people because we've been sort of drooling over it and saying how amazing it is. Hyping it up. (laughs) But for those of you just listening and not looking up the picture, you don't know what we're talking about. You know, you don't know what you're missing out on. So yeah, it's the it's the scene of Christ resurrecting from the tomb. But it's not just him stepping up onto his tomb and walking off into the sunset. It is him holding up his hands and he looks totally weightless and then he's got this sun behind him this light that is just streaming forwards to the extent where you know when something is so strongly backlit that the features of the face kind of merge into the light yep you lose your edges exactly all of the yeah edge lines start to just fade away yeah well it reminds me of those sci-fi movies what's called sunshine by danny boyle that film where they're kind of trying to get to the sun and there's this moment towards the end of the film where this figure basically just disappears into the light of the sun and it's very striking. So just a, a reference for a film that probably most people haven't seen, but, but it's a good film. I have not, but I'm sure at least yeah. some people listening have. And now, they now you can go out. check it out. Exactly. Everyone has loads of time on their hands with, <laughs> with quarantine. Yes. So yeah, this Christ figure, he doesn't look like a man at all. I mean, this is the embodiment of God. And and I think too, the swirling robes around him, they don't look like normal robes. It almost looks to me like like shell, like the layers of shell that have been kind of worn away or, or rock that has been, mm-hmm. you know, rock when it's sedimentary. 
and it has all of these layers in it and then it's just worn away and you yeah. see all of this kind of timeless layers and it's very yeah yeah what does it remind you of it's quite hard to describe I for me I'm seeing and it's probably just because of the cosmos iconography going on but I see something more extraterrestrial like a mm. meteorite looking object and again that's probably also because everything in the scene is floating mm. but it is that kind of red rusty color that rock can get and and it's also when something looks both liquid and solid at the same time yeah you know it looks like it's flowing and yet it's solid enough you know for it to be holding christ up if he's floating or not but i was gonna say in some capacity clearly they're like interacting somehow but it's really hard to tell <laughs> if he's on it or near it or in front of it or what exactly the physical relationship is yeah it's really it's really difficult to say this is the kind of painting that you just have to see yeah and in some ways I wish we'd done a disclaimer at the beginning that anyone who's who's planning a trip to Colmar please don't listen to this so that you can just have the impact of this painting for the first time without without any sort of descriptions because anything we could possibly say would minimize yeah. just the power that this that this painting has. Oh, for sure. And I mean, especially going from the Christ figure that we were describing to you guys at the beginning, this sickly suffering heavy Christ, we've now swung through to I mean, a godlike Christ. He is glowing, mm. his stigmata are no longer like points of pain, but are glowing <laughs> yeah exactly they seem like they're emitting light themselves the stigmata on his hands and his feet yeah and he's really holding them up showing them off and I think this you know it's interesting you were connecting it back to the the crucifixion scene because I think that we were talking about how people viewing this might be getting some hope for the afterlife that all of your suffering will pass and I think this painting more than any other in this in this series is showing you what you can feel like after you've had the pain of the crucifixion scene, you know, after you've suffered and your body has mm -hmm. suffered, you will be, you know, reborn into heaven or if it's, say, during the, the apocalypse that everyone is reborn. And there's a perfection there and there's a lightness there and all of your suffering will be lifted off you and you can join Christ. So I think all of these things are really condensed into this one painting. And certainly if I were seeing it, you know, as someone who was suffering, I would, you know, I'd feel... A great deal of hope yeah it's like the ultimate redemption and it almost strikes me as like his body doesn't look like it's healed it looks like he just is light now yeah like his body has just been replaced with light yeah and i mean he still carries a certain amount of earthly weight to him like in his legs and arms especially they're still pretty well defined but when you get up to the head it really does blend back into yeah the sun light like, yeah. orb behind him yeah the sun whatever it's supposed to represent life i'm sure god he is part you know earthly body part mm. cosmic being yeah in a very literal way and I could see this in tandem with the original Christ scene, mm. that kind of closes the loop there for people who are suffering or maybe people who are caring for those who are suffering of trying to see yeah. a light at the end of the tunnel. That's not just being sad about death. <laughs> Quite literally, if you were looking at this altarpiece when it was closed 
and then it's opened the first layer and that is what you see. So you've just seen this crucified Christ and then you see this resurrected Christ. And I think you're totally right about him looking like he's made of light and looking like he's weightless. And I think that point is made even more strong by the fact that there are actually figures lower down in the scene that are earthly. There are the guards that you'll often find in the resurrection mm-hmm. scenes. And they look like they've all been sort of stunned. Well, I mean, some of them look like they're asleep, but one of them looks like he's sort of been splayed and is trying to hide his eyes from this yeah. unbearable light. That leg kicking up really emphasizes like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the pointy shoes, uh-huh. you know, the height of fashion <laughs> at this time. Gotta flex the fashion, I mean. Exactly. Do you want to take a quick break and then move on to the third view? Sure. And we're back from that break. I hope you enjoyed that message. And we are talking about the third and final view. Mm. And so this is the view where you finally get to see those sculptures that this whole altarpiece was made to unveil, these sculptures that were made about a decade before all the panels. But honestly, after having seen all of these incredible paintings, the sculptures don't look like much. Uh, There's a lot of gold in the Mm centre. So you have these three saints in sculptural form. You have St. Augustine, and then in the centre you have St. Anthony, the most important guy for this hospital. And then you have St. Jerome. And then down the bottom, so the predella that we were talking about, where you had the entombment of Christ, that has also come away to reveal a scene of Christ and the Twelve Apostles. Mm-hmm. And all of these figures are very heavily gilded. So the whole whole thing is glittering and they're in a very elaborate architectural niches that are incredibly beautiful and have the motifs of the uh, the evangelists, the eagle, the ox, the angel and the lion, and all of this kind of filigree detail. But what steals the show here are the two painted panels by Grunewald that are either side of this. Okay, and it's the one on the on the right that I most want to talk about. Yeah, this is... Oh, you got muffled for a second there. there oh, go. sorry. Yep. Hello? There you are. Hello? You're back. Great. Shall I, shall I say that again? I think it was just the last part when you were, like, when you were talking to me. Okay. I heard the part about the right panel, because I also am very excited to talk about the right side panel and all of its weirdness. Yeah, it's very <laughs> wild. So what it shows is the temptation of St. Anthony. And I did a little teaser for this when I was talking about the life of St. Anthony earlier and the fact that he goes off into the desert. And so what this scene shows is probably the most famous scene from the life of St. Anthony because he goes off into the desert and who should come along but the devil. And the devil comes along first in the guise of a nice sexy lady who's trying to tempt St. Anthony to go into sin. And Anthony starts to be tempted and then looks down at this woman's feet and sees that it has cloven hooves that the devil has and thinks, nope, I'm not going anywhere near that. You're the devil. Get away from me. And so then the devil thinks, okay, I'm just going to send all of my demons to just make Anthony's life miserable. And so what this scene is showing is all of these demons attacking St. Anthony. And it is just really wild. It's really fantastic with all of its details and yeah, what these demons look like. So should we, uh, should we go into the details? Try describing some of them? <laughs> Let's try and describe it, exactly. <laughs> so first of all, just to give you an overall visual, it's very Boschian. So if you know mm. and are familiar with Hieronymus Bosch, we do a whole episode on him, then you can kind of get an idea of the type of creatures and monsters that we're talking about. But they're like Bosch with a plague bend. <laughs> so 
this one in the front kind of has these boils and inflamed spots and looks in pain yeah and yeah no because he's the only one who's not in the process of actually attacking Anthony he looks like he's so ill he's just kind of collapsed and he's got this swollen belly and again it's Grunewald throwing in all of these things that are the symptoms of ergotism Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and St. Anthony's fire. So that's what that little, little demon looks like. He's also the one that looks most human. Like he has a human face, whereas all the others are crazy combinations of animals. I think my favourite is probably just down the bottom next to the sickly demon. The biter? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's this demon that's biting the hand of, of St. Anthony. And it looks kind of like a fungus, like like a tree fungus, you know, where it comes out in those in those rings. Mm-hmm. But also, it looks a little bit like that dinosaur that has the big spiked ball on its tail, you know, and it swings it around. Mm-hmm. But except that that's where its head is. A beak. So if you're kind of inversing that type of dinosaur, I actually, because it reminded me so much of this, I looked up what that dinosaur is called. I say I looked it up. I asked my boyfriend because, of course, he would know. uh, (laughs) He would know that fact. Useful. Yeah. The dinosaur is called an ankylosaur. Mm -hmm. It's that type of dinosaur. So it's like an inverse ankylosaur. See, look, you come for the art history, stay for the dinosaur facts. I mean, what more could you want? This is what art history babes <laughs> all about. Yeah, so I really like him. What's Which one's your favorite? He's great. So I think maybe it's just, you know, based on my own childhood trauma. Did you guys have Furbies <laughs> in the UK? Was that a yeah, thing? we did. Okay, yeah, those horrible things. Yeah, gosh, Furbies, they were crazy creepy looking (laughs) exactly they were as creepy then as they are now this one up in the front like the top center that is like looking up and he almost has like a handlebar red mustache but his face reminds (laughs) me of a furby where it kind of like juts out and he almost looks like he has the furby ears okay and then he kind of just like blends into the background it's really just a face but I like him a lot (laughs) I also like his neighbor with the antlers. And yeah, the, the kind of things. the kind of deranged <laughs> chipmunk with ant- antlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I, I actually quite like the bird creature at the front. So it's got got a sort of bird head and feathered body, and then these very long spindly legs. Uh huh. And it's sort of holding up a bat. It's about to wax an Anthony. He's Anthony is really going through the ringer. I mean, he's got getting his hair pulled. He's being stomped on. He's being hit with sticks. I mean, it's some terrible stuff. If this isn't a meme, then it needs to be a meme like yesterday. (laughs) This needs one of those captions that says like, it's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. Well, the Art History Babes Instagram is definitely, you you guys are on it with the memes. So I think you could create this one. I got to pass this along to Corey. That's Corey's wheelhouse. So I'll let her know we've got some inspiration for her. I can't wait to see it. But no, I, I mean, it's... it is a scene where literally all of these various monsters' energy is kind of just focused on poor St. Anthony, who looks like a baby man, in a way. Yeah, he does. His Well, his his hair is, because it's being pulled, it, his skin is being pulled back around his forehead and his eyes, and it just makes him look like this child man. I mean, he's really... He really looks quite odd. He does. And I actually, it took me until now to just realize that that's his arm that's up trying to defend himself. Yeah. I didn't realize that before. I kind of thought he was just like laying in a supine pose, kind of straight. But he is kind of being like 
back off, guys. Get off of me. <laughs> what what I love is that throughout all this, once you've had enough of looking at the demons, look up and God is there and he's doing nothing. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> you know, he's he's standing there in a golden light, looking pretty small and not helping Anthony out at all. But maybe he's about to. Maybe that's the moment we're seeing. And the demon will be chased away. I was going to say, maybe he is, because there's a slight yellow light coming down, like right yeah. directly below and to the left of God, that looks like it could be an angel with a weapon that's fighting. Yeah, to fight off the other demons. Do you see that that shadowy demon there? I d- yeah, I totally see it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then down, if you follow even more down to the left, there's another creature that looks more like it would be an mm. angel, like a warrior angel than it does a demon. Okay. So maybe this is like the moment right before Christ comes. Yeah, to help him out. Or uh, God, <laughs> yeah, decides to show up and do something. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, this subject, because this subject becomes very popular in art. I guess it's a fun way of depicting yeah. demons. And uh, Bosch paints it you know, quite a few times. And the most famous depiction of this is in a print form by Martin Schoengauer, who was the teacher of Dürer. And this print, Antony has been lifted into the air by all of these demons that can fly and are are pulling at him and are really sort of ripping at him and clawing at him. And he's floating in the air. Or not floating, he's being pulled up into the air. Mm-hmm. And it's a really powerful image. And it's interesting because that image would have undoubtedly been circulating and surely Grunewald would have seen it. It was a very popular image. So popular, in fact, that Michelangelo in you know in Italy <laughs> copies it. So it's made in Germany, but yeah. Michelangelo does a copy of this painting. And yet he decides to take a totally different approach to the temptation of St. Anthony scene. Yeah. You know, it's very it's very artistically strong and, and innovative, I think. Which definitely, you know, tracks with the rest of this altarpiece. We promised you guys good art in this altarpiece, and I think we delivered. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I hope that's given you some taste for scenes. So now I want to talk a little bit about the afterlife of this painting, because for many years it was housed in this hospital, this hospital that was slowly losing importance as ergotism became more rare. And it was seen by very, very few people. And then in the 20th century, its star really rose at the beginning of the 20th century. And it has a very interesting history. So should we talk a bit about that? Yes, let's. I I mean, I think this is something that, like, the afterlife of artwork can either be so interesting and layered and complicated or just nothing at all. So I think that when there is a really rich history that adds to the meaning of a work that like goes beyond its life, that it's our duty to discuss it and talk about how time and different events can kind of change the meaning or how the meaning can be used by different groups for... Yeah, by different people. For their own purposes. Exactly. Yeah, so as I said at the very beginning, this painting is no longer intact in the way that we've been talking about it with these swinging doors. And that taking a part of this altarpiece really happened during the French Revolution because the Order of St. Anthony had pretty much been disbanded by this point. It had really fallen out of favour. All these hundreds of hospitals that it had all over Europe had closed. And it basically ceased to exist, the Order of St. Anthony. 
And then during the French Revolution, as a way of protecting this artwork, it was taken out of this, you know, old dilapidated hospital and moved to Colmar. And it stayed there for hundred or so years, but larger events were in the works. I mentioned the fact that the Alsace region was right on the border with Germany, and it's been a contentious piece of land for a very, very long time. And over the last 150 years, this piece of land has changed hands three times. So it was French, and then after the Franco-Prussian War, it became, and the Franco-Prussian War is in 1870-71, the area of land becomes German, and this painting starts to be seen more widely and be connected with German identity and sense of self and as being this sort of the ultimate German painting. And so during World War I, when the Germans knew that there would be fighting in this region, they moved the painting to Munich. And this was the first time that people could really see it in a wider context, because unless you lived in the Alsace region, you were unlikely to go and see this one painting. So it was on display in Munich, and thousands and thousands of people travelled to see it. It was incredibly popular. It was talked about in popular media, in the newspapers, and people travelled from all over Germany to come and see this painting. And also what's, what's really interesting is that services were held in front of the work of art, particularly services for soldiers who had lost limbs in World War I, so had suffered something very similar to those people centuries ago who had suffered from ergotism and had lost limbs, and to come and see this painting and you know have religious services in front of it. And I think that's really interesting that that was done. Totally. And I just want to add, you had talked earlier about the predella and the intentional choice of making Christ's legs you know, go over and be kind of dissected by the middle breaking point of the two paintings. And now that meaning is just kind of transferred. It's still amputation just for a different reason. And it's still seen as service to a greater good mm. in a lot of ways, or as meant to be portrayed that way for people uh, suffering in those ways. Definitely. Yeah, it really held an incredibly strong place in Germany's heart and for many of these soldiers, but also just for the general populace who had, of course, suffered during the war. And then they would suffer even more after the war with the reparations and issues surrounding that. And part of the Treaty of Versailles was that Alsace would be returned to France, and that region would be returned to France, and that the Isenheim altarpiece would return to France. That was part of it. And in a modern newspaper, I found this quote so in, in a contemporary newspaper, I found this quote that said, a piece of Germany is being cut away, the most noble part, Alsace, Alemannia, Grunewald. Wow. And I think that's so interesting that this painting was really seen as being an essential part of the German identity and as being a loss worth mentioning, yeah. you know, because... They were losing so much at the time. They were losing so much money that they had to pay to France and they were losing, you know, the entire Alsace region. And this painting is specifically mm -hmm. mentioned. Understandably so. I mean, if you guys can't tell, uh, almost two hours into this conversation, <laughs> what a big deal this altarpiece is, then we have failed you. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting that after 
the return of this painting. It seems to take a, on a life of its own in Germany and particularly for the German Expressionist movement. So Otto Dix does an incredible painting on panel that has a similar composition to the Isenheim altarpiece with the large central scene and these two side scenes in a predella. But what it shows are scenes of war mm-hmm. and it's called the war triptych. But he is clearly referencing the Isenheim altarpiece. And similarly, George Gross also does drawings and paintings that are clearly quoting the Isenheim altarpiece. It's just these four panels, but the way that it's set up with the panels and the predella are exactly like you would see in the Eisenheim altarpiece. So mm. that would be a very immediate, I guess, visual cue for people. Yeah. And even the lower predella part shows dead bodies from the war. You know, so it shows these uh, dead soldiers. And so that's creating a parallel there with the dead Christ that's at the bottom of the Isenheim altarpiece. And I love the way they did it with like the hanging tomb fabric that just Mm. so haunting. Mm. And it's interesting that then the Nazis really didn't like the altarpiece, primarily because it was became so connected with the expressionist movement. And the Nazis, when they rose to power, they very famously did away with a lot of uh, of art that they thought of as degenerate. And they had a whole exhibition of these degenerate painters, which included people like Otto Dix. And so they were not a fan of the altarpiece. And that might also, it wasn't just the connection with the Expressionists, there was also an opera at the time called Matthias the Painter. And this opera is all about uh, a man trying to paint his own artistic vision when there's a regime that is oppressive. It's clearly looking at the time of Grunewald and clearly talking about Grunewald, this opera, but it's also commenting on contemporary events in Germany with the oppression of the Nazis and the artistic suppression that they were doing. Yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time on the show. Nazis are the worst. <laughs> Do you really talk about that all the so time? That's such a hot take, Natalie. <laughs> Nazis are the worst. Know, right? <laughs> right, we're going to just go out on a limb here. Yeah. <laughs> Don't add us, but... Love it, okay, uh... good. <laughs> yes, we do take that take here. Nazis are the worst. But honestly, I love talking about degenerate art because it's just, obviously at the time, degenerate art would have had such a negative connotation. But in 2020 language, it just sounds cool. Mm. (laughs) It sounds like all the best art. You're like, yeah, give me that degenerate art. I want that. (laughs) Hitler can keep his dog paintings. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's an easy way of of knowing what was good at the time to just uh, focus in on, on what was in the degenerate art exhibition. That's a bit harsh. I'm sure there were some other good artists Mm -hmm. that weren't featured in that. But uh, yeah, the degenerates were pretty great uh, and had such uh, such a large impact on the, you know, history of contemporary art, which is, of course, all of your field, isn't it? Yes. Actually, that's where, where, well, I know know you you, you love it all, but that's... um, A little more in my wheelhouse, for sure, where I'm a little more comfortable. But I love all this stuff, man. And I, I mean... I'm glad that you were here to really tease out all the ideas and explain everything so eloquently. And I just love being a sponge and getting to feel like I'm in the classroom again, (laughs) studying older art. Yeah. No, well, it's what's so wonderful about, you know, being surrounded by people who love what they're doing, who love art. I mean, I'm constantly finding myself just 
sponging all of the actually that sounds that sounds strange <laughs> not sponging <laughs> I'm not just cleaning things yeah. now but soaking up that's a better way of saying it soaking up all of the information that I learned from from my colleagues and my fellow art lovers yeah it's a gift it's definitely a gift yeah and the final bit of this afterlife of the painting features some of your lot, some Americans, in the form of the Monuments Men. Yes. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys have seen that film. Natalie, have you seen the film? I have not. I heard it wasn't very good, so I decided. <laughs> I haven't seen it either, because I also heard it wasn't yeah. very good. <laughs> so, I mean, I could see myself reading the book someday. And I'm definitely exactly. very interested in the story. I think that it's remarkable but I, I heard that the Hollywood version didn't quite live up so I will not be watching it <laughs> yeah well the story is very interesting again I haven't seen the film either maybe one day I'll watch it if it just happens to be on tv yeah I'll, I'll give it a watch like we said we have a lot of time right now so I shouldn't completely snub yeah George Clooners exactly but yeah, so when the Allies were, were retaking a lot of the land that had been held by the Nazis, they weren't all great. Sorry about this. There were American troops went and stayed in the, the this chateau. I'm going to do a terrible pronunciation of this again, but the Chateau de Haute-Königsburg. Königsburg? That's pretty good. I think it's Königsburg. Königsburg. I think you're right. Uh, and they stayed in the chateau, and so you can imagine all of these weary troops, and they smashed the place up. But thankfully, they didn't touch a couple of rooms that were in the castle that uh, housed incredible artistic treasures. And these were things that the Nazis had moved from the churches that they were in, or the museums and things like that, had moved them into this castle. But then, most magical of all, they went down into the cellar of the castle, and there was the Isenheim altarpiece. So it had been taken by the Nazis and put in this cellar and it was refound by German troops and uh, returned to its rightful place, which is the museum where it lives in Colmar. That must have been such an amazing moment <laughs> to come across that altarpiece. Maybe it was covered, so I'm just imagining like my Hollywood version of that moment would be yeah like pulling opening. pulling down the sheet yeah that was covering it and revealing the the crucified Christ oh my god that would be insane yeah no it must have been incredible and to you know paintings go through so much in their lives and uh, have seen so much whether it's all of these different collectors and collections that they've lived in or really uh, managing to live through numerous wars as this one did and it it survived and it remains to this as a great masterpiece. And it's so lucky that, that it wasn't destroyed at one point. You know, a little, uh, you know, one bomb could have destroyed it. I, I don't know about you, but I often find if I'm looking through catalogue resumes, you know, books of an artist's entire work, you'll often find pictures that are black and white because they were paintings that were destroyed during the Second World War, particularly if they were paintings that were housed in the museum in Dresden, for example. A lot of those paintings uh, were destroyed. And so it's always a gift that so much has come down to us and that this painting has survived so well. Yeah, it really is a blessing. And yeah, we talk about the destruction of art from time to time. We have an episode on iconoclasm. Mm -hmm. That's obviously a different situation. But destruction of art in general is just a complicated issue. Because on one mm -hmm. hand, I do definitely think ephemerality in itself is interesting and that something having a lifespan is interesting 
and it's it's hard now because I feel like we get so jaded with being able to document things so well in modern mm. days that sometimes I feel like that part of my brain is what is a little bit more at peace with things again living and dying but also just the idea that like right now especially I think we're realizing how important life is in human life in particular and how amazing material items can be to help us and teach us and make us feel things but that like human beings and human life is what we should all be most focused on and most grateful for right now and Again, just tying it back to our amazing healthcare workers who are really leading the charge and taking care of us as a society right now and as a humankind. Yeah. What a segue. Hey, <laughs> so you like that. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. You can, <laughs> you can cut that out. That kind of ruined the moment because it was, I, I was just sitting here, you know, listening to, to the eloquence and thinking, wow, that was really, Thanks. really great bringing that back to bringing that back to hospitals and I'm um, not always the best at wrapping up but that was my best effort (laughs) tying it all up in a bow no I love it I I loved it and you know these these objects that come down to us from historic hospitals it's been really interesting for me to to go back and and re-explore some of these objects you know the Isenheim multipiece is something I've read about and looked at many times but it's great to look at it with this new focus in terms of healing and healthcare. And looking at hospitals now and and looking at hospitals historically and today because they are so essential for all of us and the work they are doing is incredible. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And yeah, thanks to all of you listening for hanging out with us through this very <laughs> lengthy two-parter. But I think it was a very good time. I really enjoyed talking to you, Isabel, and kind of just going into all of these pandemic related artworks that exist yeah no it was really it was really great thank you so much for having me and thank you all so much for listening I had a I had a lot of fun talking about these and yeah and don't forget to go check out Izzy's amazing um, Instagram account so that's Izzy underscore Kent on Instagram and there's a lot of good art historical references and fun things for you all to look at yeah I'd love to see some of you guys there. But yeah, thank you so much for having me, Natalie. I hope uh, I hope I can come again and talk about more great historical works of art. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk to you about this on these two episodes. So thank you very much. Agreed. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you next time. Bye. Hello. Oh, yeah. Are you okay? Just making, making lunch plans. Nice. Plan is go to the kitchen. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and see what's in the fridge.